Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey, welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast. My name is Mike and Davina, and thank you so much for hanging out with me. Today, my guest is Bob Horn, and if you're not familiar with Bob, Bob is a multi-platinum, Grammy award-winning mix engineer who is well-known for working in multiple genres, everything from R&B, pop, hip-hop, rock, adult contemporary, jazz, and a whole bunch more. He's worked with artists such as BTS, Usher, Timbaland, Michael Jackson, Neo, Marshmello, Chris Brown, Everclear, Faith Evans, like the list of artists that he's worked with is incredible. He has worked with so many amazing artists and... It's no wonder when you hear his mixes, they sound fantastic. And in this interview, we cover a lot of ground. We cover a lot of different topics, everything from Bob owning a massive studio that was a state-of-the-art facility to then deciding to move to his home studio. And that is where he's now saying he's getting the best mixes of his life. So we get into all of that and why the home studio situation is better than this massive professional build-out. We also talk about getting low end right. Because if you listen to any of Bob's mixes, you'll know that he has a great knack for getting the low end to sound huge. And when you're working with artists in the pop and R&B and hip hop genres, like low end is critical. So, um, you know, we get into all of that in terms of how he gets his low end to sound massive, which I think you're going to be very surprised by his answer because it's not that he makes the low end louder necessarily. So I think you're going to find that really interesting. So we get into that. We talk about his process for getting vocals because, again, he gets these super clear, polished pop vocals. And, yeah, this is a really good episode that I really enjoyed making. He's very articulate with his answers. He's very thorough with his process and can really clearly explain why he does things the way he does. And I think that there is a lot of really solid information to take from this. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Bob Horn, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. How's it going, man? Great. Yeah, thank you for having me. Of course. For people who might not be familiar with you or your work, can you give us a little bit of background on who you are, what you do, and ultimately how you got into all the awesome stuff you're working on these days? Yeah. Um, so I'm a mostly a mix engineer out of Los Angeles, and I started back in uh, early 2000s and uh, you know just went up the ropes like assistant engineer and you know, finally engineering and, uh, you know, I've done a bunch of mixes for a bunch of different genres, artists like, uh, R&B, Neo and Usher and, uh, Brandy and, uh, hip hop, Akon, Lupe Fiasco, Timbaland, and then, uh, pop like BTS and, you know, um, and all over the world. Like I, I, I mix, uh, stuff from Asia and Europe and, and also America, of course. And, yeah, I've been doing it for about 20 years, and um, yeah, I mean, I'm just a musician at heart. I grew up playing guitar, drums, bass, piano, and saxophone, and got into recording all my bands that I had in high school, and doing uh, live sound at my church, and just got into the equipment and microphones, started to love it, and went to school for that, and um, I also dabble in production and writing as well, and but my main focus these days is, uh, is, uh, mixing, mixing up, you know, music. So, right um, yeah, that's me. Yeah. It sounds like a very traditional path. Like, you know, most of us, we started as musicians and then you, you just get that bug to record yourself and then all of a sudden you get like mm-hmm. hooked on it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And then once you know how to do it, 
everyone else wants you to do it for their music. So you just kind of start doing the gig before you even declare yourself a professional, you know? Yeah. So you got to help your buddy record his music. And this person heard you record, they want help with their music. And next thing you know, that, that's what you're doing, you know? Yeah, I love it. It's funny because like this is this topic has kind of come up on a few of the recent episodes that we've done. And it's kind of been that idea of like when people are just getting started, like often these opportunities come your way where maybe like you don't even feel prepared for them, but you're just, you know, you, you may, might take them on just as a opportunity to learn or to dive into it. Like, did you feel like when those gigs started to come to you, did you feel like you were ready for them or was it kind of just like, this is just a learning opportunity? Um, when I, well, so all the stuff I did like in high school, just for friends and everything, there was definitely, you know, roadblocks and, and learning moments and, figuring out stuff that's not working and learning. But by the time I got to college and I started learning deeper into audio and all that kind of stuff, I, I knew enough where if I went into a situation, not knowing something, you know, we all kind of knew it. It's like, Oh, we're, we're going to figure this out. You know, whatever it is, this new software, this new hardware or something. Cause, um, you know, like I, I never really found myself in a situation where, I was expected to know something, but I didn't, you know? Yeah, for sure. And then you were, you were talking about how you went to school. I'm assuming you went to school for audio. Um, and then, and then you said you started interning and, and like working your way up the, the ladder. Yeah, I went to school. Uh, I went to Berkeley college of music for electric bass and then added the engineering program the second year. And then, um, did that for four years. And then I went to Nashville out of school to uh start interning assisting and you know working in all the studios and then after a few years um went to LA and you know so yeah kind of the traditional route people were doing in the 90s and 2000s yeah and then that eventually led to you opening up your own studio too right yeah i uh i started by leasing a big studio that was already built and uh you know threw a bunch of gear in there and worked out of there for three years. And then, um, I had to leave that place. And one of my best friends and I, um, decided to build a place. We just watched one of our friends, um, build his own studio and and he did all the work himself. And we, we saw not how easy it was. It definitely wasn't easy for him, but it was more obtainable than we had thought. And then we're talking about doing it the proper way, like the properly constructed walls, you know, proper acoustics, you know, building from the ground up, not retrofitting a room that used to be something else, you know? So we watched our friend do this and we decided to start looking for buildings and, and, you know, put it down on paper and see what we could come up with and if it was feasible. And it turned out it was, and we built this, uh, we found this 3000 square foot building and built two control rooms, one for each of us, a big live room for recording and, uh, a bunch of vocal booths and a big kitchen lounge area. And I was there for 12 years and I uh, just recently sold it last year. So, um, yeah, we did a lot of great work out of there. It was phenomenal room for drums and horns and live instruments and the control rooms. We did so much research while we were building the control rooms and we would, we would experiment on while we were building and make sure it was right as we went, not just get some plans and do it, you know? Yeah. So we ended up having some of the best sounding control rooms in town and, you know, a lot of people agreed and, you know, we didn't have to do car checks. You just, the mix would just be 
you know, close when you did your first draft of it, you know. So it was it was really a blast and met a lot of people came through there and you know, it kind of became a pretty well known studio in town. That's amazing. Was the goal for you to always own your own space or was it kind of just something that you were just so busy that it kind of made sense to do it? Well, no, I mean, I had, so I had, uh, my studio before that, uh, it wasn't all mine. I, I basically had, uh, the a room and then the rest of it was, um, owned by a, um, uh, indie record label. And I did their records and, you know, did all my stuff in that room. And, um, they pulled the plug on their whole indie label and were shutting it down. So I suddenly had to leave that building and my, uh, studio partner, uh, Eric Rikers, he was kind of at a crossroads where he was assisting at big studios and he wanted something more. And we had just watched our friend build his studio. And I think when you start buying all the gear, you know, and you start collecting microphones and you start doing it. And I think it's always, you know, in the early days, we'll try to record in a bedroom or a living room or do, you know, the gorilla type recording, like whatever you have to do to get it done. And we always kind of, I think most of us dream of like, man, if I just had my own studio where I can put the gear I want, and it's, I, I run it and it's, you know, I think we all kind of think that would be a cool thing to do. And, and we just found out a way to do it. And, uh, you know, the rest of the history, but, um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I always thought I would have one. It's just the opportunity came up and the means to do it. And, it seemed like a good idea and something I always wanted to do. I mean, the studio before Echo Bar, that's what our studio was called. Um, I had outfitted it and picked all the gear and, you know, not the walls were already built, but I did everything else. So I kind of had, and I had, I've had, I've helped a bunch of people build studios over the years and equip those and, you know, done their patch bay design and gear layout and made suggestions and stuff like that. So I had all this practice and I'd worked in a, probably about 200 rooms across America. So I had all these ideas of what I liked and what I didn't like. And Eric did as well. So when the opportunity came up, we just decided it would be a good idea. And, and it was, we, we definitely went strong for 12 years and, you know, had so many artists come through there and projects and buried. We recorded everything from harp to marching bands to rock bands and jazz bands and big bands and, choirs just everything you know and then of course mixing all that you know all that stuff so it was a blast man i'm definitely it's definitely a good life experience and you know it's just the, as technology changes and the world changes you know the last few years we just found ourselves like mixing a song and nobody's around because people they just have other things to do and they just they send the files to the mix engineer and then everything's over email and you know and then of course with the uh, clients overseas we never even meet them so we ended up just, unless we were recording something sitting in the, in a building, like alone. <laughs> and, and if one of us didn't work a particular day, then you were really alone completely like no one else in the building. And it just, it just got to be like, well, do we really need this facility anymore? And so we decided we got an uh, offer on it. So we sold it and, uh, Eric took a gig, uh, for, a warner chapel music as their chief engineer and you know i always have my mixed clients every day and i just decided to set up at home and that's the best thing i've 
ever done. It's it's so amazing to just be home mixing and you know my room. The mixes are coming out even better than they did at my professional studio. So I love that. Uh, things just yeah, things just kind of lined up and it's just comfortable and you know less overhead and uh, I kind of miss showing off the big studio to new clients and stuff and having them be impressed when they walk in. Like that's always you know a good ego boost, but end of the day it's like you just got to get the music done and not having that responsibility and overhead and the daily commute it's just opened me up to like getting more into production now and um doing some you know recording and you know producing tracks with artists as well as mixing and you know i can spend more time on a mix and i don't have to worry about driving home and what time of the night it is i can just come come here and work you know yeah I love that. that. That like it's kind of funny because it, it kind of comes full circle, right? It's like you start in your bedroom, and then you have this big dream to like have this big big space. You get it, like you said, you can show off all this awesome equipment, and then you come back home, and you're like, "This is actually kind of the best situation of all of them." <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, well, luckily, I, I so I, I when I sold the studio, I bought this house, so I picked the house specifically to at the studio and yeah. even where it's uh located on the street it's on a corner there's no houses like i'm in the studio now there's no houses that way or you know on any any of this side so i can crank it at 3 a.m and no one ever will hear it you know so yeah. um yeah it's like i just kind of chose the best situation to leave the big studio and go to a home studio but i kind of picked it so everything would line up and work and be great you know Absolutely. Well, you also mentioned something interesting. You said that you think that you're getting some of your best mixes out of your home studio. And, and so I'm curious to, talk, to dive into that a little bit, because like, you know, most people would think that having that professionally designed massive studio would be the place where you would have the most accurate listening and all that kind of stuff. So what was that transition like for you to go from that big studio to the home studio? And, and why do you think it's sounding better? It was scary because I didn't know that it was going to work. But I think there's two reasons why my mixes are coming out better because that room was phenomenal that I had for 12 years. I mean, it, it sounded amazing. Uh, Dave Pensato, famous mixer. He, he built a room with the same design after hearing my room and working in my room. Um, and it was really just a, a awesome place. We had great speakers, uh, we had these big Osbergers, um, 18 inch subwoofers, 15 inch mid drivers and a horn and, you know, 5,000 watts. It's crazy and amazing to mix on. They just sounded so amazing. And the translation was great. So coming to a home studio was scary, but I spent a bunch of money on acoustics to, without redesigning the walls and gutting the whole place. I, you know, I'm literally set up in the living room here, but I bought a bunch of panels and I spent probably four days moving panels, acoustic panels around trying to find like the flattest low end. And, and then my buddy came in and helped me tune, tune the speakers and just get the best results. And then it took me probably about two weeks, three weeks to really like get used to it and feel confident about what I was doing. And now I'm super happy with the results, but I think two things that had that changed were one, just mentality and ease of, going to the studio and mixing, I literally like can roll out of bed, go downstairs and mix, you know? Um, and just, you know, like being done for the night and going and like watching TV with my wife or having dinner. And then someone texts me like, Hey, I really need that 
uh, instrumental mix. Can you pop that over real quick? And just the lack of stress, like, well, it's right there. You know, I can even go on my phone <laughs> on the network and grab that mix and pop it in an email, you know, and like, I don't, I don't have to drive back to the studio or tell them to wait till tomorrow. It's like, so men- mentally it's a lot better. It's a lot, it's a lot, yeah, it's a lot better situation. And then of course the financial stress is gone, you know, not having to have that gigantic commercial building overhead, you know, we had a big building. Um, and then the second thing is probably the speakers. You know, I used to use, I used those Aspergers for a decade and I love them. I still love them, but they're so amazingly detailed that I think I did more work than I needed to on mixes. I think I would dig in too deep and get too crazy about every little detail that I didn't need to do. And I don't do that anymore. And I was pretty much just an immediate switch. Like with what I'm hearing now on the speakers I'm using currently, um, I just approach mixes differently. And like I said, a lot, a part of that is the mentality too. And, um, yeah, I don't know. Like I, it's just kind of a, not a trade-off. It's just a different situation. Like I'm on near fields again. I wasn't on near fields for years. I mixed on basically what are main speakers, large speakers. And it was great, but I, I hear things differently in this, this room, this situation. So it could be the room, the speakers, the mentality, the comfort. I think all that rolled into one. I'm just tracking out better mixes. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's very cool. It's interesting too, that you said that with the bigger speakers, they were so detailed that you were working harder. Cause like most people would think that it would be the opposite. You hear that detail. It makes, you know, it makes it easier to reveal it. Right. I I wouldn't say harder. I think I was doing things that might've been unnecessary. So I would hear a detail because it was so easy to hear and like, Oh, that mid range needs to be adjusted, but maybe it was fine, but I'm hearing it so well that it sounds like something that's an issue that I need to fix. Mm -hmm. Um, and they were accurate, man. Like they were very flat. I never had to check the base in a car or anything like that. Um, you know, like it was kind of scary. Like I would just do a mix, turn it in and, I had a lot of like version ones or version two mixes where we didn't do a lot of tweaks, you know, but, um, I just felt like my, I'm nailed my mid range, which is in most mixers opinion, the, the mid range is the magic. That's where the most important stuff is. I think I nailed the mid range faster the way I'm where I'm at now, you know? Gotcha. So I think it's more of that thing. And I'm just not hyper focused on the wrong thing where like I can hear every, on the the other speakers and in the, the echo bar, the room is so dead. There's no outside noise, no human noise from the next room, nothing. And it's whisper quiet. If you stop talking, all you can hear is the computer if it makes noise. And I didn't have any a noisy fan, so it was so deadly silent that you hear every reverb tail. You can hear, you know, the end where it ends and how it gets grainy, and and you start messing with things where it's like you just left those alone and let it be more musical then it might be might feel better so i think i'm just getting better feeling mixes where before they were very accurate mixes you know interesting and these speakers are still amazing like these are definitely not cheap speakers then which ones are you using now they're dutch and dutch eight c's they're incredible too but um yeah i don't know the the Aspergers are just a phenomenal thing but 
in that room with with my room i think it was just so detailed that it might have been a detriment it was still i did amazing work there like i definitely people were happy with my work but i'm happier here like with the sound of the musicality i guess yeah rather than the accuracy it's more musical now you know but that but that's an interesting observation too is like that that impact of mixes that feel better versus that are more accurate you know like that like mm-hmm. I, I think a lot of people would think like that accuracy is the thing that we're all striving for but at the end of the day it's like most people probably don't really care about the accuracy as much as the feel of it right yeah and i and i think it it could be a me thing as well like i think me just having that major change in my life and making this you know i spent so many days every day <laughs> though most days of the year were spent down there for many many hours and for 12 years and just having that major life change and I just bought an, a new house and uh, setting up in a place I'm not familiar with. And I'm kind of nervous about it. Like, am I still going to do good work? And I think all of that went into things are just different now and turned out for the better. And maybe I just made the effort to make sure that they turned out to be better. Um, you know, like I could have tried to change something up while I had the echo bar, but I didn't. I just kept going with the same thing year after year, you know. So yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I'm always fascinated to hear people who who had that big studio space and then to have downsized and you know what that transition's like. And I think that it is important. Like most of the people listening to this are people that are working out of home studios. So I think it is really important for them to hear people that have had that experience of working everywhere and have found that home can sometimes be just as good, if not better. You know, and and I think that's an important lesson. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and so many big mixers that we all know and love have, have made that move, you know. Um, there's not a lot of big name mixers left that are renting the huge studios permanently, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like all the famous guys had their room at such and such studio and, you know, rented it every day and never left. And now a lot of those guys are at home, most of them, I would say. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So I'd love to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about your your pro, your uh, process as it comes to mixing. Um, so w- when you get when you get a mix to start, like what's your typical process look like? Like what's your mindset going into it? How do you start? Where do you start? That kind of thing. Um, for, the first thing I do is verify what they sent. Make sure I have all the files. Make sure nothing's missing. Um, make sure I understand what I'm looking at. That there's not double versions you know i'll have a situation where someone will send two lead vocals that are completely different and they're both singing at the same time and it's obvious that not they're both not supposed to be used but they didn't tell me which one to use so any of those type of problems i'll fix first before i even start mixing and then once i know i have all the right files and nothing's missing i will organize the session sometimes i'll get a pro tool session but more often i get just files because someone did the production and uh, logic or different DAW or something like that. And um, so I import them into a Pro Tools session and then I'll just start listening to stuff. And uh, I do a color coding process. So, you know, the Pro Tools tracks can all be different colors and I have colors that I use for specific things. And then the Pro Tools window, the mix window, they have different size faders. So you can have the skinny view or the wide view. And I go as skinny as you can. And I don't, when you do that, you can't read the names at the bottom. So I do everything off of colors. I don't bother to read the names because they're also small, but I want to fit as many 
faders on the screen as possible. So I go with the small view and everything's colors. So if I want to adjust the bass, it's green. If I want to adjust the solo guitar, it's bright red. If I want to adjust, you know, the acoustic guitar, it's another shade of red and then synths are purple and blah, 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 you know, all the, that kind of thing. So as I'm organizing and doing the color scheme, I'm learning the tracks because it's one thing to just have the whole session and start mixing and you're just going off of what you're hearing out of the speakers. But if I can go track by track and as I choose the color for the track and verify, Oh, that's percussion. That's this color. And I need to slide it over to the left. Cause I also have a left to right order, mm-hmm. but that process will allow me to learn the entire multi-track. So I know as I'm working, it's like, okay, I know in the bridge, there's just this crazy, percussion loop that sounds really cool when it's really important but i also hear an issue with it in the high end and if i didn't do that process of organization to learn the production you know i might just grab the fader and put it at a level that sounds good and then the producer might tell me he might speak on that percussion loop and i kind of know what he's talking about because i heard that sound but i don't know it as intimately as if i checked every single track and it doesn't really add much time is it's just i have to organize it anyways because i don't want you know if i import someone's files in their alphabetical order i'll have background vocals on the left and their mm-hmm. lead vocal all the way on the right so it's got to be organized you know yeah and i so i kind of enjoy that process and then i'll do my routing so i use a analog summing mixer and print back in through a uh a helo uh links helo a to d converter uh just because i like the sound of it and um, so I'll do all that routing and I might bring in a few effects. I have, I don't work off of templates because I mix sort of me so many different genres. It's rarely the same, you know, so having parallel drum, live drum, uh, bus setups and all that, it doesn't work because half the time I don't need them, you know? So yeah. I'll have like track presets with five of my favorite vocal effects and then another track preset with five more. So I might import one of them that I think might fit the song. And then the rest is just routing through my summing mixer. And then at that point I'll put, I always ask for a rough mix so I can hear where they left the production. I'll throw that in the song, line it up with the the multi-track session. So that it's in time. And then I put it on a button. So I have a uh, monitor controller with different external buttons for listening. So I have one, two, three, four, five, six. So I'll put, the final mix on the one, two, and I'll put the rough mix on three, four. So all day long, I can pop back and forth really quickly. And I don't need the mouse to do it. I just reach down under my volume knob and hit the button. And I can listen to where they had, you know, this hi-hat pan, where they had this guitar part pan and level and how much reverb did they have on it. And like that way, I, I ensure that I don't ruin the vibe that they were happy with before they shipped it off to get mixed, you know? So once I have the rough mix in there, then I'll listen to the rough mix two or three times. Um, just kind of get in that headspace of what they were hearing and learn the song, listen to the lyrics, um, make some mental notes. I might jot some things down on a text document on the desktop and then uh, start mixing. And, you know, depending on the song and the type of tracks, it, it depends on what I start with. I don't always start with the kick drum, you know, and work up to the vocal. Sometimes I do. Other times I start with the lead vocal. Other times I'll start with the things that I hear have problems that need to be addressed before I can even get into being musical and balancing, you know? So 
um yeah it's it's a little bit random my process with um the different types of music and different types of artists i get but because they're so varied but it's also a lot of the same stuff as far as the setup and the process of getting started is always the same well, yeah, that, I mean, sometimes that's the longest part, right? So to ha- to at least have that uh, process really well defined, at least you know what you need to do, and it helps you work faster beyond that, right? So that, yeah. makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, you, you talked about listening to the rough mixes. How often do you find that the rough mixes give you a clearer idea of like what what to do with with your mix versus like you know your take versus their take, that kind of thing. Yeah, well, I'll hear their rough mix and immediately hear what I don't like about it and what I want to change to get this thing to the finish line. Um, And then once I start hearing the individual tracks, uh, I might hear what challenges might be ahead of me for making sure I keep the vibe. Because sometimes people will give you a rough mix, but then when they give you the individual tracks, it's lost something. and. That could be for producers that really crush their mix with limiters and are pushing all the faders up to the top and they're mixing all at loud volumes and the, the two bus is just super squashed. Then when they bounce the individual tracks, it loses something that is part vibe and part part balance and it could affect the way the 808 hits with the kick drum. And as soon as you tame that by you know, bouncing those individual tracks and you're not crushing that stereo bus. Now that's lost. So Mm -hmm. I'll have to figure out that challenge and be like, okay, well, I got to get that back somehow, you know, but not the way they did because the way they did it led to an unprofessional mix, you know? So, and definitely I I have to decide what did they have and how is that different from my sound? You know, like what I like to do, you know, and, Maybe they had super screaming bright vocals and just sounds like someone jacked up the high end, you know, on a CLA Waves vocal plugin. But I don't want to do that and and hear like, well, can I do what I hear and still make the client happy? So I, I kind of go through all those mental decisions and and I hear the finish line of the mix as I do that. And then I just got to run through the motions to get that achieve that, you know. Gotcha. Well, you, you talked about how some of your clients might send you these rough mixes that have that limiter on it or that bus compressor or whatever. Um, do you find that you typically work with like a bus compressor on right from the beginning of a session or is that something you would add later on no. in your sessions? Or, okay. um, I, I, my first thing once I start mixing is to work with the meat and potatoes of the song. So if that's the main drums and then like a main guitar or main keyboard, bass and then the lead vocal and then everything else is extra you know so not to say that it's not important but if that's the meat and potatoes of the song i'll build that first and start working towards a a stereo mix level um and where my faders are going to live on average you know just to get started and then i might turn on a couple master bus plugins but I'm, i'm not like going for the loudest volume right off the bat. I might work for a couple hours before I get into getting the loudest volume, you know? Gotcha. So yeah, you're kind of setting like a, a more reasonable level without all that master bus processing. And then you can kind of hear what it's going to do afterwards and, and mess with the sound from there. Yeah. I mean, 
it's I've done top down mixing before and that that works really well too. But I don't know, like I I my traditional way of working is just to balance stuff, not worrying about getting as loud as possible at first and worry about that later. Um and I've learned to I guess someone might worry about doing a wrong move if you don't try to get the loudest mix as possible from the start. But I don't know. I guess I've gotten used to what I can and can't do until I get to that stage of like, you know, limiters and clippers and all that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, if you know your tools well enough and you've got that kind of sound in your head that you're used to hearing, then you know what the master bus processors are going to do like that clipping or whatever. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, it makes sense that you can turn it on and off and feel confident either way. Cause you know what to expect. Yeah. And I, I feel like if I, work on the balances without the limiter and i'm trying to get the best crest factor which if people don't know that's that's they say the loudness of your mix has to do with your crest factor which is the difference between your peaks and your rms level um and if i work on that really hard to get a balanced mix before i compress or limit it then when i do compress and limit it i'm usually ahead of the game and can get achieve what i want easier with less compression you know yeah and now and now when you're saying less compression like it sounds like that crest factor you if you're trying to get that balance of the peaks and the rms um like close to each other then most people would think that compression would be the solution to that to to get them closer to each other um but are, do you find that that's like something you can achieve just through you know volume and and basic eq and stuff like that alone or are you talking about like adding a little bit of compression to the individual channels as well you can uh you can i definitely do compress individual channels more than i compress the master gotcha but you can you can completely level out a mix um with eq and achieve a relatively loud mix without any limiter first and then put a limiter on it to give you that last maybe two three db but i've I've seen people that'll put on a limiter right away and just start pushing things into it and the problem is if you don't know where all the balances live in this song yet you'll probably start adding things and you keep adding and the more tracks you have the more it's going to build up and the next time you look at that limiter it's going to be like crushing your mix five six seven db and you've taken all the life out of your mix where if you would have balanced it first and tried to get a balanced sounding mix that sounds like nothing is too jumping out too dynamic and then put a limiter on maybe that limiter only has to work one and a half to three db so that's kind of what i find the difference is if i start crushing a limiter when i'm only listening to drums bass and keyboards and maybe the lead vocal, then by the time I put in all the other tracks, I'm doing too much compression because it's added. If you start adding all this stuff on the other hand, if I have a rough mix going on a production and I produced it, I know all the tracks they're all on and I just want to put a limiter on the balance is already there. What I'm talking about is being someone that doesn't know the song. I just got these files let's say they were sent to me as WAV files. So there is no balance on the faders. It's just yeah. flat files. So yeah. I have to build that balance. So I can't just have every track on and at zero right away because things will be too crazy to even listen to. So I kind of got to pull down those faders, mute some things and start working it in. And if you have the limiter on from the get go, 
uh, it can be dangerous healing because you could really end up crushing it uh, depending on how you build that mix, you know. So I like to put the limiters on probably an hour into the mix, maybe an hour and a half, you know. Yeah. How long do you find it generally takes you to finish a mix? Depends on the genre and the amount of tracks. So I did an EDM record EP two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and it was minimal tracks. It was it was so underproduced, but it it had it had all the right stuff. But other people, I could have heard this music produced so much heavier with just like tons of bells and whistles. And this guy was really reserved, and I was really impressed because it just left this openness. And when we went to do the Atmos mix, it was phenomenal because there was so much space. Not every little note was filled in with, you know, uh, keyboards and and percussion and stuff. So a a song like that, I could mix in two and a half, three hours because it's less than 20 tracks, you know, Mm -hmm. and I could, you know, make it sound amazing in just those three hours, maybe even two hours. But then if you give me a song, I like I'm next week, I'm going to be mixing a track that's 299 tracks. I already oh, loaded it up, organized <laughs> it. It's insane. It's got besides regular drums, bass and uh, guitars and keyboards. It also has a whole orchestra and then probably about a hundred vocal tracks on it. It's just this wow. epic out there, crazy operatic kind of, song i don't even know what to call it but it's it's amazing and it's gonna it's probably gonna take me a day and a half because with that many tracks to go through and especially there's like four singers on the background so i can't just get one background vocal sound and copy the plugins 99 times you know so i'm gonna really have to go through everything and then the orchestral stuff is so dynamic i'm gonna have to like you know do some volume rides on the violas and then bring in the timpani and it's, it's not going to be a set it and forget it type mix. It's going to be involved. And that'll probably take me a day and a half. And the first day would probably be a really long day. But the other thing that happens when you have so many elements like that is you get burned out because you're focused on all these things and you, you can't just put it in and move on. You got to make sure it's right. And, you know, so it's just two wild ends of the spectrums, you know, hip hop, three hours, K-pop. <laughs> you know, eight hours, 12 hours, you know, something like that. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah but uh, the reason I was asking was just because of how you mentioned you like to put in the limiter usually about an hour in or something like that. So I was curious to know at what, like, you know, is it towards the end or kind of closer to the beginning, that kind of thing? It's still, it's, it's closer to the beginning on, on, in most cases, like any, any song that has a traditional uh, rhythm section, you know, drums, whether they're programmed or live, and then it has bass and some, main keys or guitars like a grand piano and then lead vocal once i have that stuff in the mix even if there's still 200 tracks left to put in i know where the overall volume needs to live for the record um so i can go ahead and get my close to final level and then when i put in all those other 100 background vocals it probably because because of the nature of what those instruments are like the background vocals or little percussion stuff that isn't the main snare or main kick it's probably not going to push the level too much louder but i'll i'll keep checking that limiter and make sure i'm not doing more reduction than i wanted to and it doesn't start like it's squeezing the life out of things you know yeah, yeah. so i'd say on a super crazy heavy mix i'd probably get the 
the final level of the song within three hours. And then on a small mix, I'll have those limiters on in a half hour, you know? Yeah, cool. That's awesome. Um, Earlier, you were talking about the importance of mid-range, and you were saying that most engineers will agree that mid-range is like the the main thing you got to focus on. Um, And I agree with that for sure. But uh, one thing I'm very curious to know is that you do work on a lot of hip-hop and R&B and stuff like that, where the low end is in some in some ways it's just as important some people would argue right um and so i'm curious to know like when it comes to working with a lot of low end and especially in that kind of genre do you have any tips for getting the low end to sound big and clear but without making a mix sound muddy at the same time and like and how do you preserve that mid-range to low end balance it's um well so even in hip-hop and r&b mid-range is still the king and you wouldn't think that but here's here's how to think about it take um Take Dr. Dre, Chronic 2001. There's lots of low end on that record, but not as much as there could be. You know, and then you could take something like Amigos track where the heavy 808s and there's a lot of low end on that track, way more than Chronic 2001. But you don't look at Chronic 2001 and think, oh, it's a light record. They should have added, Dr. Dre should have added way more bass. No, it's perfect. But the Migos record is completely different with way more low end. And why is that? Because the mid-range is what's important. The vocals are there, the snares there, the balance. When you when you jack mid-range around, you change the biggest things the fastest. It has the biggest swings and uh balance. So if you have your lead vocal and you do a wide dip at 1K, you've turned down the vocal. You've totally changed the balance. Like that vocal's lower in level now because you've done that EQ move. And I think one one thing that young mixers don't pay attention to is how EQ is gained. It's level. It just happens to be level at just one particular frequency when you move one band. But, you know, you take a hip-hop song and you do a shelf at 100 hertz and cut out 2 dB it could still be punchy and sound like it has a nice low end. It just has less low end. You do that same move in the mid range, totally jack up the mix. So that's what I mean by saying mid range is, is key because you, you screw up the mid range. Your mix can be horrible. You do a different amount of low end. It can still be a great mix. It's just tighter or bigger, you know, and Mm -hmm. same thing with like super high end. You could have really bright and crispy, hip-hop track or you could have it rounded off you know like something like jimmy douglas would use you know do like for jay-z or you know something like that but um so there's more flexibility in the lows and the highs in the mid-range if you don't have that mid-range right it doesn't sound good it won't sound good on radio won't sound good on your phone especially the phones the phones the mid-range has to be really good um so you have less flexibility with getting the mid range right with the high end and low end, that can be more of a taste thing. You know, if you have way too much mid range on a rock song, people aren't going to like it. It's going to sound mid rangey could bite your head off, be uncomfortable to listen to, you know, but if I change the low end two or three DB up or down, it's just different. It's not necessarily going to be wrong. You know? Yeah. That's an interesting point. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. And I I think you're absolutely right to point out the EQ, and gain uh, correlation there because yeah I think you know our ears are more sensitive generally to mid range anyway so it's like you're absolutely right mm-hmm. you start cutting that stuff out all of a sudden it sounds quieter and you know people are struggling to hear it a lot more so um, yeah. yeah I think that's a really good argument for why that mid range is so important yeah as far as 
tricks to low end. Uh, I mean, every, every situation is different as far as a specific thing that can be done. But I think the key to low end is knowing what needs to have low end and how much and being able to meld the tracks that have, do have low end into each other. And I think this is why this habit of everyone low cutting everything, you know, doing high passes on everything that's not a kicker base. You know, they roll everything at from like 100 hertz or 150 on every keyboard and every vocal. So none of that stuff has low end so that they can only have bass and kick. And I don't believe in that. There's a way for things to have low end. And I think it's important for things to have low end that aren't kick and bass. But then you got to know how to meld that in with a kick and bass. So, um, I, I think, and I think all of that is just practice. Um, yeah, it's, it's low end is the hardest thing. Number one, your room and your speakers are the most important things when it comes to low end and the frequencies that come out of the woofer are measured in feet where when you're talking about mid range and high end, they're measured in inches or centimeters. Like the, the frequencies are way smaller. Um, so when you're talking about a bass drum, and you have a small room that's eight feet deep and like say your bedroom that base room isn't even developing its full frequency range in your room uh without hitting the back wall first so um an 808 can have a wave in it that's 20 feet long before it makes us a, a single cycle positive and negative so your room acoustics are essential for uh, getting bass right you know you have to be able to hear it to work on it otherwise you're just guessing subwoofers are great to have uh, i know some people don't believe in subwoofers and some people get good work you know they do good work like that but um they might use headphones to compensate for not having a sub or something like that um and if you do have a, a bad room to work in i think headphones are important to kind of compensate whether you use just regular standard headphones or something like a slate BSX room simulation. Those things are, are cool too. But if you can't hear it, you're not going to be able to get it the best that it can be. So um, my room was uh, played back 20 Hertz at zero DB and it wasn't flat the entire range, but I could hear 20, I could hear 25, I could hear 30, I could hear all that stuff. And when I heard an acoustic guitar, uh, I knew whether or not I needed to roll off the subs to make room for the bass and kick. And if I didn't need to do that, I didn't do that. And I, I do things like I'll, I'll add a low shelf to a vocal when most people just think about cutting low and out of a vocal, but my vocals don't sound like they're bassy. And, and it's just a skill of EQing the right way at the right time. And that's what makes mix, EQing specifically and mixing is so difficult and I've, I've chased certain sounds for years in my head. Like I'll hear something a certain way and it took me a long time to figure out how to get that EQ the right way. And that's funny. There's so many variables in mixing. That's what makes it difficult. That's what makes it, you know, a challenge for everybody. And we all have our favorite mixers because of how they hear. And it's a combination of everything. You got the guy's ears who's mixing the tracks he was given to mix the room he's in, the speakers he's using, how he feels that day. You know, it's like, there's so many variables. It's, it's ridiculous. And it's hard to just spout off into it like tricks. You know, mm -hmm. there's 
certain things you can do. I really like Jason Joshua's low end, even though it's not always the biggest low end. He has a talent of making it appear to be bigger than it is. And I think that's also why he gets his mixes so loud and so in your face is because he knows how to sculpt that low end so that it's just right and it has just the right amount and it, it seems to be larger than life, but it's actually really tight. If you were to like pay attention, look at meters and you know, really judge it against loose, uncompressed low end, his low end's actually pretty dang tight, but it appears big. And I think that's the the challenge is, is making something seem larger than it actually is, uh, just to get that balance and that crest factor uh, correct. Because Lowen has the most energy as far as dynamic volume. And if you don't contain it properly, whether that's compression, EQ, fader balance, clipping, all those different tricks, then you know, your mix is going to be out of whack and you won't be able to get a, a nice loud mix that's competitive. And um, I think that's why so many plugins have been developed that are clippers and, um, you know, bass room and like all these uh, low and focus by ozone. And it's all just to help people um, get their bass louder, the bass of their mix and uh, be able to uh, achieve the volume that they want. and. It's really, I think the most important thing with low end is, is phase relationship. And that could be a phase between bass drum and a kick drum, uh, the bottom end of a piano or organ with the bass. And all those things have relationships and you have to know what you're listening for. And that's the difference between when an artist would do their own rough mix and they have no knowledge of this versus uh, a veteran engineer is they know what to listen for and they can realize that oh that that conflict between the low end of that cello or that upright bass is conflicting with my kick drum and my bass guitar and i need to figure out a way to make those three elements work together where you know an artist or a young producer or someone that's not into the super details of mixing like we are they'll just lop it off with a low cut and let that cello be kind of thin and not sound as awesome as it could. So it's hard to speak on exactly what someone can do with their low end because there's a million things and you, you could take the same artist produced by the same person. And the second song you mix for them, your techniques will be totally different because the low end's different. The key of the song's different. Uh, you know, there's so many, mm -hmm. so many things to talk about with low end. Yeah, yeah. Go on for days, you know. But but I love that you brought up that point that like low end doesn't necessarily mean it's like cranking the low end, you know, and having a ton uh -huh. of it. I, I think that that's a really important lesson. And and you know the uh, the struggle with people that do that is that then on smaller speakers that don't really produce that low end to begin with, and you don't really hear that bass anyway, right? So you know you you definitely need to be focusing on some of like the harmonic content and that kind of thing to, to actually make it cut through on those smaller speakers as well. And if you don't pay attention Absolutely. to that, then you're going to lose it. Yeah. And it, I mean, mixing is all perspective and, and contrast. So let's say you have a bass guitar and a, and when you listen to that bass guitar by itself, or take a synth bass, you listen to that synth bass and it's not particularly large sounding, but it does have those low frequencies. And then you put that next to a grand piano. 
and that grand piano has a bunch of low end on it the way they put the microphones on it let's say it's not a, a sampled grand but it's actual live acoustic grand and maybe they the way they recorded it, it just has so much low end now that synth bass sounds thin so you want the synth bass to be bigger than the piano because it's a bass so you just add bass to it now your synth bass is way too bassy but the perspective between that and the piano is correct as far as the piano is tighter than the bass but if you were to leave that synth bass alone and tighten the low end of that piano in a way other than just lopping it off but finding a way to sculpt that into the synth bass and have them meld together then all of a sudden you have this deep rich low end focused synth bass against this piano that sounds just great you know so it's it's perspective you know if you want mm -hmm. something to sound really big and reverby don't have every track in your mix big and reverby because then you just have a wash of everything in the same space have things dry because that's the contrast you have something close enough front it's going to make that reverbed out thing sound ginormous and epic you know yeah i love that i think that's a really all about contrast yeah absolutely well, another element of your mixes that I really admire is the sound of your vocals. Like I, you have this amazing knack for getting vocals to sound so clear and just have this like pocket in the mix for for the vocal to sit. I, I I'm curious to know more about your process when it comes to vocals and how you approach that and and get your vocals to sound so polished. I do a lot of vocals, and I've you know I've done a few tutorial videos over the years, and and. You know, when, when excerpts from those videos end up on YouTube, I'll see comments like, wow, did he really need nine plugins on the vocal? And my thought is, yes, I did. And the reason that my <laughs> vocal sounds so good is because I, I did what I did. And I, I do a lot. And that can be, I'll just, I'll just, I'll just kind of like make up an example of something typical. So I'll find, take the vocal track. I'll make sure that the level is recorded right to hit my plugins and my gear the way i want it to so if they recorded it super hot not necessarily clipping but it's really loud i might lower it a few db before i start working or raise it if it's too low especially if i'm going to use an outboard compressor i have some tube gear that sounds really good on vocals i like to run through you know nine nine times out of ten but um once i get the level then the first thing I do is listen to what, what do I think is wrong with this vocal, if anything. Um, many vocals, like you, you probably know, that we get from artists, they're dull or super bassy because they have the proximity effect and maybe they didn't do any EQing on the way in and now it just sounds like this dark, extra warm, thick vocal that's not going to fit in, let's say, a pop track we're doing. So... I'll just kind of mentally prepare myself. So, okay, so what are the big moves I'm going to do first that are corrective moves before I get into artistic tonal style type moves, you know, and definitely not, not even thinking of effects yet. I mean, I might've thought about it based on the rough mix or the vibe of the song, but I'm not going to touch those yet. So uh, maybe I'll do a low shelf on, on a vocal to help the low end out, but I'm not going to, lop it off and in fact i might put low end back in later but i'll get that get the vocal to where it's relatively flat sounding nothing's too nothing's poking out so there's no super harsh high end that's extra airy and bright there's no big build up of low end i'll kind of flatten it out uh you know harmonically 
then I'll compress. Um, because if, if I left all that low end in, the, in a boomy vocal and I hit a compressor, the compressor is going to be reacting to that bass, not to the notes uh, and the rhythm of the vocal as much as it is the bass. Uh, so I'd probably be doing more reduction than I needed to. I could introduce pumping and all that kind of stuff. So once I get this first compressor that I use is the hardest working. So if I'm, let's say I'm using a wave CLA 76, it might be doing five to seven DB of reduction. And I typically do medium attack and very fast release on this first compressor. Um, other things I'll use of analog would be a locomotive 14 B. It's my favorite vocal compressor things. It's a very mute compressor. It sounds really good. Um, in the box, I like the RS-124 Abbey Road by Waves. Um, that's a great one. Slider Man, which is a very little-known plugin by this small company, and it's a recreation of the DBX-163 half-space unit, and it's a oh, great yeah. plugin, great, great presence adder. So it's called Slider Man. I love those. I got a couple in front of me. They're great. So after one of those compressors, I'll do my first de-esser, and... One I really like is the Waves Gray Old School DSer. Like they're not even the Renaissance, just the regular gray one. And I find that S DSer works great for S's that are between two and five K, maybe six K. And then I have other DSers that I'll put later in the chain if I need. That'll work on higher S's, like eight, nine, ten K stuff way up there. You know. Um, so after DSing, then I might do some sculpting to try to get the tone I want. So if it needs a little open air or a little more 2k presence, or maybe I, now that I've compressed, I want to add a little bit of low end richness back, but I'm not going to do the opposite of that low end shelf. I did. I'm not just going to put the same low end back. I'm going to put a very specific low end back. And one specific trick I do is I'll do a low end shelf. That's way below what anyone would think about with the vocal. Um, we, we talked about earlier how people just roll off vocals at 150. I might do a shelf at 60 and boost that 340 dB on the vocal. And that'll add a richness. Um, and people would think, well, there's no, there's no sound down there. What is that doing? It's like, well, you, you just got to try it. Trust me. <laughs> it, it does something. Um, and that's one thing I'm not afraid of in my vocals is keeping them full because I will find a way to get it in the mix. Um, and there's, there's still many steps to this. So when I said I did a lot to vocals, I, I mean it. So um, after that EQ, I might do, I might re-examine re the dynamics of the vocal versus the track. So if it's, a really, if it's a really open track, then I might be good on compression and limiting it. Now it's just a matter of doing fader rides, vocal rides, you know. Um, if not, I might need more compression or... I might need um, something like the Waves MV2, you know, the upward expander. Um, it kind of push up and down at the same time and just lower the dynamic range. I'll do something like that. Another one I like is uh, the Leapwing Al Schmidt plugin has a great compressor for the vocals. Um, so something like that. And then if I need a plugin like Soothe or uh, one of my other DSers, a second DSer, I'll do that. You know, I've actually done. Um, there's a trick you can do with Melodyne DSing. If, if someone is especially SE, you can load the vocal in Melodyne and lower all the S's, uh, just volume wise. I've also done it with, um, volume automation. 
And then at that point, um, uh, if I need to, if I really need to get the dynamics tight so I can get above a dense like rock or pop track, I might do a parallel and um, use something like a distressor and a limiter like a Pro L2 or something just to really take the dynamics completely away of the parallel, maybe even some distortion or saturation, and then blend that in with uh, the vocal. I've also done uh, exciters like fresh air on that parallel if I just want to add in a little bit of air, but you have it so compressed that it's it has no dynamics. So when the air happens, it's not jumping out at you and ripping your head off, you know? Mm. Um, and then after that, I get into effects and effects will sit in the mix, um, depending on what kind of verb you use, whether it's early reflections or, or big, long, lush verb. And if, if I'm trying to have the vocal really swamped with a big epic verb, but that's swallowing the vocal and, and making it lose clarity, then I might get into something with, uh, like something like track spacer or a side chain on the reverb so that it'll duck out of the way when the vocal sings and uh also eq the verbs i'm not afraid to eq my effects i'll i'll take the um the vocal out of the, the dry vocal i'll take that track out of the mix uh people probably know uh you can control command click on the output in pro tools and it'll make it inactive so you don't hear the dry signal you just hear your reverb returns um and I will work on the effects and make sure that they meld into the mix uh, in a nice way that they're clear. Sometimes I'll put saturation on reverb. And again, just like low end, there's, there's so many individual moves you can do. And um, effects are a lot of fun. Like I love seeing if I get a Pro Tools session, that's great because I can see what kind of effects they like. And I might integrate them into what I'm going to do. I might keep them 100%. Last night I did a mix where I loved all of their effects and they were such a vibe. I didn't want to recreate the wheel because they already had a great vibe. I just needed to do a little bit of automation to lower them on the verse. And then I added a, a doubler just to give the vocals some stereo perspective. Um, that's the other thing. I, I make my lead vocal take up more room than just right up the center. I like having a little bit of a doubler or dimension d or chorus or something is just to give that vocal some space on the sides and just kind of command your attention um yeah that's one thing i was very curious about because you your mixes always seem to have this like kind of three-dimensional vocal feel so i was curious to know if you had any other uh processors that you like to do with that so i, I love the dimension d i think it's a great great tool for that kind of yeah thing. and then the the last most important thing of all that is the fader and uh drawing automation or or doing it on the fly you know and um i get really detailed with that it's if i i do have an occasional song where the vocal just sits there and the compression does all the work but it's dependent upon what type of track and what it's supposed to sound like if it's an edm song where they're just doing this repetitive thing and the track dynamic is the same all the way through then i may not do any vocal rides or automation but if the song is supposed to have dynamics and feel I might get really involved with it. I might have some crazy amount of compression on that vocal with like three compressors at different stages, but I've ridden all the, all the emotion back into it with the fader. And that sounds crazy. It's like you're, you took out all the dynamic range and then you put it back in with the fader, but I put it back in my way that works and, and comes across best, you know? 
So. Yeah, I love that. I think that that's such a good way to do it because, yeah, most people just let the natural dynamic happen, but then you kind of lose control of it. Whereas at least your method, it's like you've controlled the vocal and now you have fun with it. You put it the way you want it and you build those dynamics in, which I think is huge. Yeah, and a lot of people don't realize when they compress a vocal what it does. And and I think of the waveform a lot. If you think of when a sound uh, uh, when a sound hits and there's a transient, whether that's a, a hard instrument like a snare, there's a transient and then a tail. Vocal is the same thing. Any instrument is the same thing. Like They, they have a decay to it. And the vocals, you have breaths and S's and T's, like the start of sounds. And when you compress the snot out of a vocal, you've completely changed the decay of that tail. And a lot of times, the mouth noises and the breaths and the S's, everything gets louder the tails get louder so when a singer sung a syllable and then the word decays it doesn't it's not decaying anymore because you compressed it so sometimes that's that's a vibe like a super compressed pop vocal can be a thing but other times i want to take the fader and recreate a really nice dynamic emotional fade out where the compressor isn't letting it fade out anymore but the overcompression is giving it a tone and a power. So I have to do both. You know, I can't just leave it natural and move the fader because it's not going to have the impact, you know? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I work, I work a lot on, on the vocals, but it's, I think the artists appreciate it. You know, if I can make a, a singer, cry listening to their song then that's a, that's a win Mission accomplished, yeah <laughs> that's what we want we want our clients to cry we want them to cry ha- happy tears though <laughs> right on man well bob thank you so much for for diving into so much detail with all of this stuff you know i, I don't want to take up too much more of your time and uh i think you've given us some amazing answers here um i have one last question for you which is at the end of the day like what ultimately makes a great mix in your mind um A great mix is displaying the song with a great, you know, it's just displaying it in the best manner possible. So that can be just enhancing, enhancing the delivery of the song to where it has the most impact, um, grabs the listener's attention the most. Um, Sometimes it can just be not messing up what the artist had has given you, you know, maybe they had all the emotion and, and vibe it needed to have. And now you just need to just barely enhance it and, uh, you know, not overdo your thing, you know, but the song you, you want to make the song better if possible. And that might seem like a hard thing to do, but if you, if you portray that song to where people enjoy it more then you've done a good mix, you know, Yep, definitely agree with that for sure. Well, again, thank you for taking the time to do this. If people want to learn more about you or maybe potentially work with you or follow you online, that kind of thing, what's the best way for them to do that? Almost everything on my social media or email is Bob Horn Mixing. Um, So IG, Instagram, Bob Horn Mixing, Facebook, all that stuff. Um, Yeah, I mean, they can find me on there. I've got snippets of videos on youtube you know from produce like a pro and pro mix academy and uh different places like that um yeah cool awesome well again thank you very much i really appreciate it
So that was my interview with Bob Horn, and I really enjoyed that episode. I just thought that he gave some amazing answers to everything, and I thought it was really interesting to cover all of the topics that we covered here. You know, everything from hearing him make that transition from, you know, starting in a home studio to then taking on a big studio to then going back to the home studio. I really appreciated hearing that journey, and I thought it was really great to hear that in his home studio, he's getting even better mixes than he was in his big studio facility. And I think it really does say a lot about what's possible out of a home studio. And I know that most of you guys listening are working in home studios and may never ever set foot in a massive facility, but I don't want that to ever deter you and make you think that you can't make great mixes from home. Obviously, Bob is living proof of that. Now, I know that you guys couldn't see the video that we had, but like, if you actually got to see Bob's room, it's a pretty simple setup. It's a living room that has some basic treatment just to keep everything contained. And it's not something super fancy. So his studio is definitely proof that you can get amazing results from home. So I love that he touched on all that kind of stuff. And then I also really loved getting into his vocal process and how extensive his chain is, but why in particular it is so extensive, you know, why he's making all the moves that he's doing and, you know, how he thinks about every single piece of the puzzle and what goes into it. I think that that is a really big lesson to learn there. And it goes a long way. Like if you, again, if you listen to any of his tracks, you'll know his vocal sounds so polished. So, you know, it makes sense that he's taken the care to go through every little bit of the chain to make sure that it's getting him the results he wants. And uh, yeah, he, he gets amazing vocals. I also thought it was really fun to talk about low end as well. And I also really like how in particular, he talked about how, Getting big low end doesn't necessarily mean that you're making the low end bigger. Sometimes it's about making the mid range more clear. And I think that's a really important lesson as well. And uh, something that regardless of the genre of music you're working on is an important lesson to learn there too. So yeah, I really enjoyed that episode. I hope that you did too. And if you did, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com if you're looking for help on how to create pro-sounding recordings and mixes from your home studio. On that website, I've got tons of great resources designed to help you out. And if you're looking for one-on-one help and you want someone that can listen to your mixes and give you feedback specifically on what you can do to improve them and you know what settings you should try and this and that, That is exactly what I can help you out with inside of my coaching program, Amplitude. And in that program, the goal is to help you finish your songs, get them sounding just as good as your favorite records, and help you get these songs out. And in that program, you get one-on-one access to me, you get access to all my programs, you get access to mastering, and a whole bunch more. Again, this whole program is designed to help you put your music out there and feel totally proud of it and confident in your process. So if you're interested in learning more about that, make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Amplitude, and you can find all the information on that page there. All right, with that said, we've reached the end of this episode. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.